Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify Conversation. I'm your host, Sam Shu, and today we're talking again with Dr. Eckler about meningococcal meningitis, a very important topic to us here in Florida, but also in other parts of the world. And before we dive into that conversation, I want to remind you that we are nearing the end of June. That's the end of EB Medicine's birthday month and the end of the 25% discount you can get on all of the different options at ebmedicine.net. So go there today, become a subscriber, download the app, and enjoy access to all of that information at your fingertips. And now, on to our conversation. So let's talk about meningococcal disease. And specifically, I want to bring this up because if you live in Florida, we've had a couple of outbreaks already this calendar year in 2022 that have been concerning. And if you are an EB Medicine subscriber, there is an excellent article on meningitis that you need to go read that uh, talks about all of the basics, the clinical presentation, what labs you can rely on, which PS, there are no labs you can rely on other than CSF evaluation, and what might be on the cutting edge of CSF evaluation and some of the clinical physical exam findings. All of this is discussed absolutely wonderfully in the article. But I do want to talk about some interesting things that we've learned here in Florida in our outbreaks. So meningococcal disease is something that we immunize people for, students, people who are living in dormitories or cohorting together. It's recommended for prisoners or really anybody who's, who's going to be within a small confined area of space for a prolonged period of time. And our outbreaks here in Florida have brought to light that there are multiple different serogroups of meningococcal disease. And so if you're not aware, which most people I think aren't, there is a meningococcal vaccine called the MEN for meningococcal, ACWY. And the ACWY are the four subgroups that the vaccine effectively prevents infection from. But we have had outbreaks in Florida in the college age population of serogroup B, which is not included in that typical vaccine. And the reason those serogroups were chosen initially was because they were the ones that were primarily causing disease in the U.S. for all people, including those who have HIV or immunosuppression or are otherwise healthy. But there is actually a separate vaccine for those who are at risk for meningococcal serogroup B. And here in our own county, in, in Leon County, Florida, we had an outbreak among the college and university students of meningococcal serogroup B. And the CDC, after reviewing all the data, actually recommended vaccinating college and university students, students living on campus housing, or those that are living in fraternity or sorority houses or participating in those programs with the specific meningococcal B vaccine series. And so I thought we would spend a little time just talking about meningococcal disease. So, so this was my first real outbreak. And I, I feel as though some of the older docs that we work with talked about some of the different outbreaks that they've had around here. And I think being in a densely populated area, being in a college town, I didn't quite expect what that would be like, but it was really 
scary because these are young people and you really just want to be as protective as possible. It was great from some perspectives because a lot of these kids were already vaccinated for for meningitis. They had some protection that that made me feel somewhat reassured. But I found this difference between the Sarah groups to be another thing to be more cautious about, to be more worried about. And then just reading this article and going through the, the different pieces of data that I need to collect and have in my head, I felt reassured by how challenging it is to make this diagnosis every time because they don't always have a stiff neck. Their fever is a subjective fever, not an objective fever. And I found that more and more I'm just giving, I'm getting more comfortable with saying, you know what? I feel confident doing the lumbar puncture. We're going to do that. We're going to see what that CSF looks like. And then we're going to go from there. Yeah, it specifically highlights the need for lumbar puncture in those kind of gray zone cases where you're looking at somebody going, you know, I mean, you do have a headache, you do have the stiff neck, you you know have a subjective fever. And, you know, in this era where most of the cases of meningitis we see nowadays are all viral, it's very, very, very likely to be viral. But bacterial illness is not gone. And this particular outbreak highlighted the importance of Understanding first what's going on in your local community. So meningococcus causes bloodborne infection, meningococcemia, or it can cause meningococcal meningitis. And in a population of people who are highly immunized already for meningococcal disease, some of these can be relatively minor presentations, maybe not life-threatening. We saw a series of patients who had symptoms for four or five days, which is typically the duration where you go, oh, this is clearly going to be viral. If this were bacterial, you would be dead. You would have presented way earlier, mm -hmm. at least for all of the considerations of meningitis in the past. If you're five or six days into your illness already, we're not thinking this is a bacterial meningitis. We're thinking this is almost 100% viral because you've been tolerating it for so long. But I don't really stop to think that hey, maybe you are immunized against meningococcal disease, and that's the reason why you've been able to make it this long as you've got this kind of initial infection, then the subclinical state that's finally now becoming problematic over time. And then it was an interesting education to learn about the serogroup subtypes and the ones that we commonly vaccinate people for and what it looks like to have an outbreak of a serogroup that most people are not vaccinated against. And here in Florida, like I said before, we had two outbreaks. One was the serogroup B outbreak, which was in the college-age students. Another one was in the southern part of the state where they had a serogroup C meningococcal outbreak, primarily in men who have sex with other men, a population which is not highly vaccinated with the meningococcal vaccine. And so again, after the CDC did its investigation, if you fall into that high-risk category or if you have underlying immunodeficiency like HIV or anything of that sort, that you should go get the meningococcal ACWI vaccine to cover all of those most common subgroups because you're at higher risk. I'm fascinated by the history of medicine because this was a vaccine that came out when I was in probably like middle school, high school, and kind of everybody got it. And it was just one of those things that it was a time when science came along and said, we have this way of preventing you from getting this horrible disease. And everyone was like, that sounds great. I don't want to send my kid to college without a meningitis vaccine. So everyone got it. And I, I don't know. And now I want to go back and look at my records, having had to find them for years and years now for all these jobs. 
to see what serial groups am I covered for? What strains was that vaccine covered for? And should I consider whether or not I want to get more vaccinated? And just the ongoing battle against infectious disease that science and public health and physicians are, are fighting, it fascinates me and gives me renewed energy that this is still such a great job because having gone through this, I, I can give you four quick patient stories that just fascinated me the last few months as this kind of came and went. But I had a young guy with maybe a week of fevers that came and went and came and went. No real meningeal signs. His labs looked all right, but I couldn't quite convince the hospitalist that he was sick enough that needed to come in. And we sent off blood cultures and his blood cultures came back the next day as gram negative diplococci. And so he comes back to the hospital and everyone's worried, but I had given him, you know, a dose of ceftriaxone because maybe there was a questionable sexual history and sent him out on some doxycycline just as something protective and, and also covering for sexually transmitted infections. And the infectious disease got all concerned that it was meningitis because everything was a nail when we had a meningitis outbreak. And it turns out he just had a disseminated gonorrhea. And so he, he looked great after that dose of ceftriaxone. And it was, it was one of those ones that, that kind of, everyone was convinced it had to be meningitis because everything was meningitis, but he looked really well and did great. And it turned out that it was gonorrhea. And then I had two patients that during the actual meningitis outbreak, one that came in and looked terrible. And it's one of those patients where you walk by and you're kind of waiting for your colleague that you're coming on to sign out to you. And you walk by one of the rooms and you just see this patient that just doesn't look good. And you say to your colleague, hey, you're trying to wrap up your shift. That kid in that room doesn't look so great. Were you going to do a lumbar puncture on him? And they're like, ah, and you could tell it's the end of their shift. They're worn out. And I said, hey, let me, let me do the lumbar puncture on that guy. So I basically did the lumbar puncture on this kid. His opening pressure was very elevated, but his CSF looked great. But he had a chest x-ray that looked strangely inflamed and like pneumonia, but didn't really have any respiratory symptoms. And he had meningococcemia, but not men meningococcal meningitis. Wow. And then I had a young girl who came in maybe a week later who had a very close contact with one of the patients that we admitted that got very, very sick, that had real meningococcal meningitis. And she told this incredible story for horrible onset of symptoms, fever, headache, neck stiffness. And I did her lumbar puncture and her opening pressure was great. Her lumbar puncture looked great, but I still didn't feel good enough to send her home. And I admitted her and everything was fine. And she got discharged the next day, but it, it really, it, it really left me feeling a little bit like this is still so hard. Like there is not a right answer every time. And I had one that I admitted that one of our partners said to me, why'd you do a lumbar puncture on that? That, that kid's young, they're healthy, like that's viral. And I said, they just, they looked really bad and they look really, really like much sicker than I thought. And the opening pressure was really much higher than I thought. I think both these opening pressures that threw me off were like 35, 36, 37. And I, I started that patient on a cyclovir because it didn't look bacterial, but I wasn't sure it wasn't something viral and significant. And that patient grew out HSV the next day. Oh, goodness gracious. I hate and those I, stories. <laughs> I, but I just, I would tell you that I, having been doing this now for 10 years, I'm getting more conservative on my lumbar punctures. And I have not heard anybody give me a great story that unless the LP is legitimately perfectly normal, it's not a reasonable idea to admit those patients. Because if there's something abnormal about it, You'd like to really know it as soon as possible and be able to intervene as quick as you can. Yeah, I will reference the EB Medicine article, Emergency Department Management of Adults with Infectious Meningitis and Encephalitis from April of this year. 
as an excellent resource when it comes to those kinds of machinations. You're trying to determine what you're supposed to do with this patient and based on their clinical presentation, what your suspicion is. We had an excellent conversation with the author of that publication, and it uh, is on the podcast. You can go back to April and listen to it uh, on this podcast. It's a great, great conversation, and it still comes to the forefront every time we see people who have abnormal CSF. Well, how abnormal is it? Can they really go home? How convinced am I that this is viral meningitis? And it has a lot to do with what do they look like? What's their clinical presentation? What's their outpatient resources? Do they live close enough to come back? And do they have family who's going to bring them back? And all of these things enter into this discussion with the patient and the family, and then what's their risk aversion, and how worried are they, and uh, are they insisting on going home or being in the hospital? There's lots and lots that goes into this decision-making. It is certainly not a, oh, they have viral meningitis, good, send them home. Because, uh, again, you're going to have this conversation with your consultant when you call, I have a child who has had a fever for five days. I did a lumbar mm -hmm. puncture. It is primarily lymphocytic in nature, and the number of white blood cells was abnormal, but it was in the hundreds, not in the thousands, and the child is well-appearing, and you're going to get this kind of cricket-cricket on the other end of the phone going, well, don't you think this is viral meningitis, doctor? And you go, well, yeah, actually, it probably is, but, and then you need to have some kind of armamentarium for the but part of it. Why is it that you still think this person's either high risk or not a great candidate for observation outside the hospital? And that's okay. Those cases definitely still occur. I will say on the topic of the meningococcal meningitis that the CDC does have a very good webpage on the outbreak in Florida, which I'm happy to put a link to in the show notes and nicely details at the bottom in the footnotes that the CDC routinely recommends the meningococcal vaccine for children and adults who are at increased risk for meningitis, and that includes high schoolers and people in college. And this is the, the vaccine that's the ACWY serogroups, the most common, and that they recommend that anyone who's at increased risk due to an outbreak who received the vaccine more than five years ago, go back and get a booster shot. So if it's been more than five years since your last dose. So even if you're a healthcare worker and you receive this at a younger age, if you get exposed, you're still going to get the prophylaxis if it's been more than five years. And then the booster is still recommended if you've been exposed. And then when it comes to the B subgroup series, this is not something the general population is vaccinated for. And for anyone 10 years or older who's at increased risk because of an outbreak specifically from that subgroup, those are the people who should then go and get vaccinated. And you're at increased risk for the outbreak, even if you had the vaccine more than a year ago. So unlike the other vaccine where if it's been more than five years, they recommend a booster. In this case, if it's been more than one year and there's an outbreak, you need the booster for meningococcal subgroup B. And that's all detailed there really quite nicely on the CDC page. So I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. And again, emergency department evaluation and treatment of infectious meningitis and encephalitis. It was an excellent EB Medicine article in April. I highly recommend it. I can't speak enough about these gray zones and these frustrating calls, but, but it's a good reference for you when you have that conversation with your consultant, uh, especially if you think it might take that off to the right trajectory as you're getting questioned more about your decision-making than about the clinical case and what's going on with the patient. It's an excellent resource to have. 
great. The, the podcast was an awesome summary too. I, I listened to that on my drive recently and it was, it gave me some reassurance that, that I was heading in the right direction in terms of, of really trying to be a little more conservative and a little more aggressive about diagnosing bees because there's a lot of value there and a lot of good you can do with the, the trusty pile of antibiotics that you can give. That's right. And that's a wrap for this episode of Amplify Conversation. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to take our listener survey. In the show notes, there is a link that you can use. It's three questions, super easy, and such valuable feedback for us. And of course, if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to rate us in whatever podcast store you're listening in. Also in the show notes, you'll find the links to the CDC information on the meningococcal meningitis outbreak and all of their recommendations. And lastly, don't forget, there are still a few days left in June and still some time for you to claim that 25% off discount at epmedicine.net. Be safe, everyone.